0: Immer, immer muss ich durch Straßen gehen. Und immer spüre ich, da ist einer hinter mir her. Das bin ich selber und verfolgt mich lautlos.
1: Aber ich höre es doch. Ja, manchmal ist mir, als ob ich selber hinter mir herliefe.
0: Ich will davon, von mir selber davonlaufen. Aber ich kann nicht, kann mir nicht entkommen. Muss, muss den Weg gehen, den es mich jagt. Ich muss rennen, rennen, endlose Straßen! Ich will weg, ich will weg! Und mit mir rennen die Gespenster, die Müttern, die Kinder, die gehen nie mehr weg. Die sind immer da, immer, immer, immer! Nur nicht, nicht Ruhe. Hello and welcome to the Bloody Bits Horror Show. I am your host, Eddie. The Axe Jefferson. Joining me is always that long, lingering shadow, Tim Yobo, ladies and gentlemen.
1: What's going on, Eddie? I think you need to learn where that button is on the new soundboard for well, your ax sound, right?
0: <laughs> I need to upgrade my computer. This week, for week two of March Madness, we have a uh, request by you, Tim Yobo. We're going to be discussing Fritz Lang's 1931 horror classic, M. But we are not alone on this journey. Of course, we are joined once again by Iago Faustus.
1: Hey, guys. Hello, Faustus. I guess you're, you're almost like an all-star now on the show, right? This is your fourth appearance. I think so.
2: Well, I'm happy to be, oh, yeah. traveling, with, happy to be traveling with you all into the dark, especially this week. This is... This is the granddaddy of them all, I think, in terms of at least the serial killer movie, possibly also the police procedural. Uh, it is one, just one of the most incredible and influential movies we've done so far.
1: Oh, you could see, you can watch movies now and see the fucking fingerprints of this movie all over it. hmm
0: mm-hmm. Most modern horror, and I would say uh, the entire film noir genre. Yep. A lot of it. So, Tim... This was your yes. suggestion for March Madness. Uh, what's your history with this, and, and why this film?
1: Uh, I remember seeing it on video when it came out, like probably like like around two thousand, somewhere around there, and just seeing it because it was supposed to be the big movie, you know, like the, like one of the original serial killer movies, and really enjoying it back then. But then I think it was on Tubi or Amazon about like a month or so ago, and I saw it like eh, what the fuck? Let me watch it, and just. I completely forgot so much about that movie, and just watching it this time, the last time, it was just an incredible experience, and I texted you right away, like, can we do M on the show? And you're like, surely. It's good to be a co-host.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a, and it's a wonderful pick. This this film, uh, by the way, one of the only films that is uh, currently at 100 on Rotten Tomatoes and 95 for the People's Rotten Tomatoes as well, so whew, it's the big one, like you said
1: yeah definitely anybody who hasn't seen it should definitely check it out. It's like I say when you see it, there's gonna be a million things that you've seen in all these cop shows and t v movies about murderers and serial killers and Silence of the Lambs got some stuff thrown into it yeah
0: yeah it's uh the the fingers of the hand chalked with them reach uh, quite far all across many many genres um so, Faustus, what what about you? What is your history with this film?
2: Uh, I mean, I think I probably watched it probably for the first time on sort of like a film society screening in college. Um, and then, you know, I've seen it a number of times since then. Uh, the, war, the one that I'm working from, from for this one is the 2010 Criterion Collection Blu-ray. Um, they have both a Blu-ray and a DVD with a lot of interesting additional commentary and some supplementary material this has the movie has a very complicated physical history and only recently have certain versions of it come to light uh that didn't exist you know people that had been lost uh but there was like a french language version of this movie as well uh and an english language version of this movie Mm. uh, both made at the same time as it was essentially by lung uh and they were it was early in the sound era so they were making these it's a lot like, they had these unusual practices where they would dub certain parts, they would reshoot certain parts with actors whose native language was the new one, uh, and then they were, you know, so like a lot of the conversations would be reshot, uh, and in the case of Peter Laurie and the famous scene with which uh, Eddie opened this podcast, yes. you know, his 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 agonized, abject self-explication. Uh, He Peter Lorre simply did that in French and then did it again in English um, for the versions that came out, and then they've been rediscovered. So we now have a new candidate for Peter Lorre's first English performance.
1: uh, Have you seen it?
2: Yes. Wow. Uh, It's it's right there on the DVD. So if you can get the Criterion Collection disc, either the DVD or the Blu-ray, definitely do so because it's a great piece of film history. Um, So and uh what to say about this i mean I, I can go on at some length this seems to be it it has a reputation for being the first serial killer movie uh that may or may not be true the first anything is always very hard in film and there are a couple of early entries in the silent era that might have you might have otherwise claim the title but this does seem to be the one that everyone really remembers.
1: So this is kind of like Halloween and Black Christmas. Black yeah. Christmas was out before Halloween, but Halloween is the one that everybody saw and everybody remembers, and that's the first slasher.
2: Probably so. I mean, I looked around. Somebody found like a movie made in in Portugal of all places in 1907 that has a sort of serial killer theme, and it's you know maybe that guy did it first. But I had never heard of that one uh, before. You know, actually searching for it. So. There it is. This is the one. Uh, we have M, what does it stand for? No one really knows. It sort of could be many things. It could be Metropolis. It could be in the sense of the giant city of Berlin where it takes place. Murder, the murderer, which is to say the character played by Peter Lorre, Mensch, man. It's also, I think it might stand in some sense for modernität. Uh, modernity, because you have the serial killer as a kind of distinctly modern phenomenon in a way that Fritz Lang and the people who made this movie Seem to understand. Uh, it, he's a kind of character that can only exist in a large, anonymous urban environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, stereotypically, the first people people often think of as modern serial killers, Jack the Ripper in London, H. H. Holmes in Chicago, uh, are urban figures. They they don't live in like, little villages or anything like that. Because if you lived in a little village, you could never be a serial killer. You would. Um, be detected. Yeah, you don't have to pull, to pull yeah. from as,
1: as you do with, who's also, like, you, anonymous people running around London all the time and no, just picking them off.
2: Exactly. No anonymity. Also, no privacy. Um, these, these are men who live in a world where privacy is possible. Uh, and travel is possible. You know, like, you know, like Buffalo Bill, to take an example from a, a more contemporary serial killer movie, can drive around in his van covering thousands of square miles of territory looking for victims. That's not something you can do in, say, the middle ages. No. Uh, there's no, no roads, no van. Uh, it's just, you know, not really possible. So the serial killer is very much a modern figure and Berlin, where this movie is set is I think probably the, the almost the epitome of the modern city. Uh, you know, it, it, it is where an avant garde place in the arts. It lives in the center of one of the most technologically advanced societies then on earth. And so you are living in that particular world uh where you know people are anonymous people live in huge collectivities people are alienated from each other they don't really know each other it's also it's interesting that this is again a a movie about policing and about bureaucracy to a a huge extent Mm you know the serial killer can't exist in some ways in the past because there aren't police forces there aren't people writing down formalized standardized records that can be compared and then you know, they could say, oh, there's a murder over here and a murder over here and a murder over there. Yeah, and so there not... could have
1: been plenty of serial killers who there maybe might... weren't prolific where they weren't killing, like, 50 or 100 people, but were just able to get away with it because there were no cops.
2: Right, because in, like, yeah, if you have 15th century foot, there is no police department to call up the, the police in 15th century Leipzig or whatever. You just keep... So the serial killer is being kind of, in some ways, created. There might have been people like that, as you say, uh, but you couldn't detect them. Another way in which you can detect them, in which modernity is different, is that there are, there is mass media in modernity, all right? People are reading, they're writing newspapers, they're reading newspapers, they're seeing accounts of crimes, and when things happen, people compare what happens from put time. put two, to two together. They put it together, and then it's like, you know, typically, so Jack the Ripper uh, is the first great media figure also in this way, right? You know, he writes the newspapers. Uh, the London Metropolitan Police figure the figure out that he exists, but it's really that you know there's a, a newspaper culture that he lives in, and uh, these people write about him. He becomes a great celebrity, even though nobody actually knows who he is, uh, and that makes him unique. It makes him something that someone that can only exist probably from like the late nineteenth century on. Um, <clears throat> it, modern, it's very modern. Also, I think in the sense that. There's a lot of, a huge emphasis in this movie about time. We are constantly seeing yes. clocks. yep. We are constantly seeing people referring to time. Uh, people call up and ask for the time. Uh, and we also see a lot, it, 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 as a matter of media and time, we also see newspapers. Significantly, the one we see most often is something called Tempo, which was a real Berlin tabloid in 1930. Tempo meaning Time. Uh, And if you if you have the right kind of edition, one of the things that something like the Blu-ray is really good for is you can read the dates off the newspapers. And as you and you read the dates and you can see them moving in succession. The whole whole of this the action here is actually compressed into about a week of sort of real world time. Uh, Yes, at least as measured by what we see of the newspapers that the characters read. Um so media then there are other things that are not just modern but that seem to me to be distinctively german uh and as many critics have noted the the experience of the first world war is part of the psychic background of pretty much all of weimar cinema weimar here referring to the german republic that existed after the fall of the kaiser in 1918 up until the time of the rise of Hitler in 1933. Uh, you know, a very difficult time in German history, also an incredibly uh, creative and dynamic time in the world of German culture uh, in ways that maybe have alienated a lot of people in German history, but that's the way it went. Um, the First World War, we need to think about this very seriously whenever we look at a movie like M, uh, because we are looking at a really traumatized society. Germany in the First World War had about 2 million war dead and 4 million war wounded. That's in a country that in 1914 had a population, I believe, of about 65 million. Uh, and the wounded number, of course, is only for physically wounded. We don't really have
1: a way of estimating the number of psychiatric casualties. That Were was. they even really keeping track? Were they even considering something like that? Probably not.
2: It? A, military psychiatry was was sort of in its infancy at the time. Uh, there was a category recognized at least among Americans and American and British forces, uh, as shell shock, uh, which was in effect a kind of psychiatric disability. Uh, I think that in, in Germany uh, it was much more thought of as men who could not perform or who fell apart uh, in combat and may just have been you know uh, slackers. But there were you know, we could often there must have been a huge number of psychiatric casualties in addition to the actual physical. Casualties. And to think about the scale of this, if you imagine comparing it to, say, the United States today, you suppose that the U.S. went to war, you know, say, against China, they fought for four years and lost, okay? You would have the equivalent number of dead for the United States would be 10 million, okay? And the equivalent number of wounded, physically wounded, would be 20 million. And you'd probably have maybe another 10 million dead from like privation, hunger, Related to the war, uh, and then some hard to estimate, but probably very large number of psychiatric casualties. The society would be badly messed up. All right, just imagine what living in this country would be like if that happened. Well, if you would try to imagine that, you get a sense of what living in Germany might have been like in, say, 19, 1920s, 1930. Um, the country's a mess. A lot of families would be broken. There'd be a lot of war orphans. There'd be a lot of widows. Every time you go out your front door, you would encounter a lot of beggars, uh, crippled and hopeless war veterans, and as we note in this movie, we see there are a lot of beggars. A lot of them really are physically disabled, missing limbs and so yep. forth. Um, they're everywhere. That's central to how this movie plays out. Um, and there are other traces of war trauma here. Uh, you know, there are a lot of broken families. If we the little Elsie Beckman doesn't appear to have a father,
1: she no, she definitely does not have a father
2: um she's a little too young to be a war orphan but she may not have another, a father for another reason possibly just because there's a shortage of men um in you know her gener- her mother's generation um and everywhere we look we see beggars everywhere we look we see economically marginal men and petty criminals uh we see a lot of people with damaged bodies uh and then a lot of crime and the authorities don't seem to get a lot of respect Uh, which is probably what you'd expect when the last bunch of authorities led you into a war that got things screwed up that badly. Uh, There's a scene here that struck me. It's sort of minor, but it's a a group of citizens mob a policeman, all right, and beat up someone that they suspect of being a child murderer on a very flimsy pretext. And it's very hard for me to imagine that happening in, like, pre-war Germany, right? The cop would, those people had a lot of respect for authority, the cop would have said, you people back off, and they would have. Here they turn into a mob uh, and there's also there's a fascination with violence there's a fascination with strength that I think comes out of out of the war experience easily a majority of men living in Germany in 1930 between the ages of 30 and 60 would have seen wartime military service in one of the most violent and destructive conflicts the war had world had known up to then. yeah they saw some shit yep the political wounds left by the war left a lot of people, the war and its immediate aftermath, the collapse of uh, Imperial Germany and the rise of the Weimar Republic through a process in which there was a failed uh, communist revolution in 1919 in various places, left a lot of people feeling that violence was the redemptive solution to social problems. Obviously the Nazis are very prominent here as the biggest proponents of this kind of worldview. But probably, it's probably the case that there were a lot of people on the left as well. Um, people close to long, like Bertolt Brecht, who have their own bitter memories of what of the recent past and who might be longing for a day of violent redem- redemption. Uh, and, you know, we see also there's a fascination with crime, uh, as we will see. Even Frau Beckmann reads crime serials. Uh, the man who comes to her door gives him a letter. Yes, calls. I have a
1: note about that. Yeah.
2: Yep. Uh, and... Um, the most charismatic figure in this movie by far is a professional gangster. Uh and he speaks in a kind of eliminationist rhetoric. Uh, you know, the only way to deal with certain people is to is to wipe them out. Um and it's it's significant also that there is in the culture of the time, one of the most important cultural works is the three penny opera, uh, which is to say the Brechtville reworking of the original John. A gay beggars opera, in which the hero or at least the anti hero is also a charismatic gangster. Um, and there's also, a, there's a tremendous artistic interest in things like madness as well, uh, post-traumatic stress disorders, is, that not really available as a category, but people were obviously messed up. Fritz Lang, who directed this movie himself was a war veteran. He lost an eye in the war. So one of the greatest directors in history was a one-eyed man, think of that, uh, actually had to recover from shell shock. Uh, And, you know, it's it's probably also an accident that one of the most important high cultural events in Berlin in the 1920s was the debut of Alban Berg's opera Wozzeck, this atonal masterpiece, which is the first opera in 300 years of opera to have it essentially be about working-class people, uh, and it's a story of a put upon soldier who goes mad and murders the mother of his, of his illegitimate child. Uh, so this is this is the huge background to the the world in which this movie, out of which this movie emerges, and also in which this movie has been set. Uh, I hope that wasn't too lengthy. Uh, I hope it didn't feel a little too much like a sermon, but it just seemed that. This is the sort of stuff that I could not help
1: but think about uh, as uh, the many times that I've watched this uh, movie. Faustus, this is a fucking historical historical movie, so yeah, yeah. we want to hear the history on it.
0: A piece of art like really this happy. could only come from from very fertile soil, and, and sometimes yeah. that the what fertilizes that soil isn't always necessarily uh, happiness and lilacs.
2: Yeah, well, that's that's for sure. Plus, it's uh, 1931,
1: so I don't think I can't even remember back that time what was going on. So. It's good to know what was taking place at the time, what set
2: this mood for the movie. So, got a couple of additional notes. I mean, I I have notes on the cast from time to time, but I think we might do that in in breakdown. Uh, Except for one thing, Seymour, I wanted to talk about the producer a bit. Uh, Seymour Nabenzal was actually American-born. He was German-Jewish. The family money uh, really appears to have come from his father, who his grandson describes in a cr- Criterion Collection interview as a, a butter and egg man. And they went back to Germany in the 1920s uh, looking for business opportunities, and someone said, hey, why don't you, why don't you produce movies? Uh, and strangely enough, they decided to do so. They created the company called Narrow Film, which makes this movie. It's pretty much the only competition to the giant UFA consortium that made movies in Was Germany. this the first
1: movie that they produced?
2: No, they had produced a number before this. Um, they had produced a number from um, G.W. Pops, including Pandora's Box, uh, the pioneering war film West Front 1918. They did the film version of the Three Penny Opera. After this, uh, they did The Testament of Dr. Mabuza. Um, so they were they were active in moving both you know, G.W. Pops and Fritz Long and other directors along.
1: And they were doing um, legitimate shit. They weren't doing, they weren't like oh, they were yeah. a canon back then with like, hey. Want to make some money? Well, I was gonna. I was gonna invest a factory. Yeah, why not produce yep. some movies? Well, they, they did, and they made some
2: great ones. Uh, Seymour had to flee Germany in nineteen thirty-three. Unsurprisingly, hmm, he went yeah. to he, he went to Hollywood, uh, and in Hollywood in nineteen fifty-one, he did a remake of M or produced a remake of M, uh, set in then in contemporary Los Angeles. Uh, this movie has mostly is very hard to find. Uh, I've got a copy of it on order, uh, but it's like they redid the whole thing with cab drivers apparently replacing beggars, um, and like you know the mob or whatever in Los Angeles being the appropriate organized crime figure. Mm-hmm. And it's apparently visually very interesting because it consists. It gives us a record of a now vanished Los Angeles neighborhood of old Victorian houses near downtown, the place that was called Bunker Hill, I believe. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to looking at it for just those reasons. Yep. Uh, what other historical background? There were real historical serial killers in Germany, uh, as you're probably aware. Uh, one of the most, one who's probably the most apropos is someone named Peter Curtin. That's Uh, the guy from like
1: 1920?
2: He's, right, he's active in the 1920s, or actually, it looks like between about 1913 and 1930, possibly longer. Uh, he was known as the Vampire of Düsseldorf, or the Düsseldorf Monster. Uh, he killed a string of women and girls in the period we discussed. He also appears to have had a deep sexual attraction to blood and violence. And many aspects of his case show up in the fictional case in M. There were massive manhunts. Uh, at one point, the German police had a list of suspects of 900,000 names.
1: Oh, I, so anybody who was a guy.
2: Yeah, pretty much,
1: any,
2: <laughs> per, pretty much anybody in, in the venerable in vicinity of Dusseldorf was a suspect. Uh, the perpetrator wrote to the press, just like uh, they do in this movie. He actually provided a map to the remains of one of his victims. They did use a graphologist to link different cases of murder together. Uh, the investigation was contributed to by Berlin's chief inspector Ernst Genot, who was apparently one of Long's principal models for the character of Karl Lehmann. Curtin was eventually caught and tried, and the verdict in his case came down on April 22, 1931, just two weeks. Before the premiere of M. Wow, you can't uh,
1: buy publicity like that.
2: Nope. So Ed Curtin was executed by a guillotine on in July 1931. There's another case uh, called Fritz, uh, a killer called Fritz Harman, who's actually mentioned briefly by a police psychologist uh, in the course of this movie. Harman was known as the Vampire of Hanover. He was a cannibalistic serial killer of young men, at least 24 of them, uh, whom he would lure to his apartment for sex before killing them. With a bite to the Adam's apple and subsequent strangulations. and there are rumors that he sometimes sold his victims' flesh as contraband pork or horse meat. Although, as far as I know, this has never been actually confirmed. And He was also but beheaded. it helps to
1: sell newspapers because oh, being no a cannibal way. isn't enough.
2: Yep, yep. Uh, so he was also executed by beheading in 1925. So, yeah, you know, there's, there, there's a there's a fucked lot
1: of up serial killers back then. Well, you know,
2: yeah. <laughs> This, is, this is, it was an era for him. One little bit more of trivia, which I just wanted to bring in, which brings us around uh, to the modern day or near it. Peter Lorez, you know, would have fled Germany in 1933, just like most other uh, Jewish film personnel. He went to Hollywood. He would make a lot of movies. He would be a big celebrity there as well. And he had a daughter named Catherine Lorre. Uh, now, in early 19, November 1977, you know, Catherine Lorre was walking home. Uh, along Hollywood's Highland Avenue when she was stopped by two Los Angeles policemen uh, who they said they were policemen. They got out of their car. They showed Los Angeles cop badges. They said, we're with the Vice Squad. We want to see your ID. Uh, So she went through her purse and she found various things. And one of the things she found was a photograph of herself as a little girl sitting on Peter Lorre's lap. Uh, she explained, this was my father. My name's Catherine Laura. This is Peter Laurie. And so they look at it. They go back to their car for a minute. And then they bring the photograph back and said, okay, you can go. And then they drive away. Several months later, it transpires that the two guys who had pulled her over were not Los Angeles police officers, as you can probably guess. They were two interim individuals named Angelo Buono Jr. Um, And his adoptive cousin, Kenneth Bianchi. Bam. All right. You know who those guys were, right? Oh,
1: yeah. Uh, kind of famous to... serial killers in their own right, right?
2: Yep. They, they they are collectively the Hillside Strangler, and they were apparently planning on abducting, you know, raping and murdering Catherine Laurie. But when they realized, found out who she was, at least according to one version of the story, they, they figured that the attention that would be generated by murdering the daughter of a, a famous celebrity was not something they wanted. So they let, so her, they let be her go. Too
0: high profile.
2: Wow. Yep. yep. So... So that's talk about coming full circle. That's uh, so
1: why you should always carry pictures around with your parents. <laughs> yes, if they're famous,
0: provided they're famous. Yeah, I was just about to say.
1: <laughs> All right, so just get a picture of somebody's famous holding a baby and say that's me.
2: Sure. So that you know, and it's the sort of thing that if you wrote it into a you know wrote it to a story or a screenplay, they'd say, "Come on."
0: Yeah, nobody would right. ever believe it, and they'd tell you you need to yeah. you need to make it more grounded in reality. Um, yeah, all right, and so, yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much for so much of the history behind this film. Um, again, so I'll break it down for some of the more simple parts of it. This was, of course, made during kind of the rise of the fascist Nazi party in Germany. Um, filmmaker Fritz Lang was uh, of Jewish descent he, he and his wife actually co-wrote and, and, and uh, produced or, or, or directed this film, Thea von Harbo. Uh, and I have some notes here that their marriage didn't go so well uh, because she sort of ended up uh, becoming a, uh, uh, sympathetic to the, to the Nazi party. And uh, that, that didn't work very well for Fritz, of course. So they yeah, ended up... Yeah, that's
1: a kind of a deal-breaker.
0: They ended up separating after that, but but they had worked together before, and uh, as you previously mentioned, Metropolis, which was his, I mean, a phenomenal film that really dealt a lot with the uh, kind of strife between the upper and lower classes. Um, Fritz recognizes this to be probably his greatest work in in, uh, in the film industry, and I have to agree. I think at this point we can start...
1: No argument from us.
0: We can start breaking down the film unless you've got something, Tim.
1: Uh, No, I'm good to go.
0: Okay.
2: So where do we go? We open on a blank screen to the sound of a gong. Uh, Which I guess, yeah, commentary apparently is recognized as German radio listeners would see this as the opening to the, the top of the hour news. And we look down into the courtyard of a working class tenement where there's a group of children. They're playing a count-out game, like uh, you know, "Eeny, meeny, Mini moe," except you know, a little girl in the middle of the circle, counting out the children to a rhyme, uh, and I'm going to give you my best effort at a transcription. My German isn't very good, um, but it's—it sounds to me like "Warte, warte nur ein Weilchen," by kommt der schwarze Mann zu dir, mit klein, mit dem kleiner Hakenbeilchen. Macht er Schabefleisch aus dir. Uh, wait just a little while. The black man or the man in black is coming for you. With his little cleaver, he's going to make you into hamburger. Significantly, by the way, the circle looks a bit like a clock. and This little girl is moving in a clockwise motion. So we have our first clock reference in the very first image of the film. Uh, and we also see children making a game of their own endangerment.
1: Well, I think that's just to show us that this is something that's been going on long enough that even the kids would know about it and would be making games about it, too.
2: Mm -hmm. I I wanted to make a note, by the way. This little girl who we see in the middle of the circle is uncredited, but her name is Hannah Maron. Um, She was from a Jewish family that would emigrate from Germany in 1933 uh, and settle in mandatory Palestine. Uh, later to become, the part of it they settled in anyway, Israel. And she rose to great prominence as what is arguably the greatest single uh, actress in Israeli theater, uh, receiving wow. Israel prior in theater and honorary doctorates from Tel Aviv and Ben-Gurion universities.
1: And that's her first role.
2: Yep. Uh, an uncredited role uh, doing a countout game at the start of M. They're out the they're school. I would note, by the way, that there's one thing. There's a middle there's a washer wound. Or maybe just someone delivering laundry leans over from a balcony would you stop doing that horrible song um and then you stop for a minute and then as soon as she goes away they start again uh so she climbs up the stairs she goes to the apartment of the Beckman. while Beckman is uh taking delivery of the laundry and she says you know the this woman complains about the you know the children of their horrible song mrs Beckman says well, at least as long as you can hear them, you know where they are. That's going to come back a little later. Yep. yep. <laughs> so she goes about, she's finishing laundry, she's making soup. She looks up at the cuckoo clock on the wall, which strikes noon. Um, and this matched almost immediately by the tolling of local church bells. Caught to outside of school.
0: Where we have um, a bunch of parents.
1: All picking up the... I I didn't. I thought it was just like lunch. I, think, I guess it's like the end of the school day at 12 o'clock. Uh
2: well on on Saturdays okay on I was Saturdays like, wow, all those York.
1: parents outside to pick them up for lunch everybody really is taking this serious
2: well I think it's like it's actually probably like the end of the Saturday session uh and those do end at noon typically
0: and there's a bunch of signs on the street asking um who who is the
2: murderer but also remember there's there's something here I'd like to note as well Elsie leaves all right. She's helped across the street after almost being run over. There's a helpful policeman comes up, right? Uh, this is a sign, one hopes, of a well-ordered society. Police help little kids. But, but there's a hideous irony involved in the fact that he walks her across the street. Um, in that he is, She's bouncing her ball along, and she comes across a column plastered with various ad- announcements and advertisements. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
2: Poor Elsie. Don't want to pick her up. She has to find her way across the city by herself.
0: Bouncing her Ah. ball along the way. Bounces it across a column. And, uh, well, we see on that column there is a a poster. And this poster asks, who is the murderer? Mm -hmm. And uh, she's picking up her ball. And what looms large over this poster but a shadow.
2: A shadow. Du hast ein schönes Ball. Wie heißt du denn? You have a pretty ball. What's your name? And she, you know, a nice child says, Elsie Beckman. Um, and we see it's Peter Laurie who's been looming over her. Um, a note by the way, Elsie Beckmann, just another casting note. Uh she is played by a, a child actress. She's named Inga Landgut, and she would go on to have a distinguished career as. A, I wrote this in my notes as an adult actress in Germany. That's misleading. She worked mostly in television, and in later life she would be doing. She did a lot of dubbing work for English-language films. Uh, she did the German voice of Miss Money Punny in James Bond films. Wow! She did the that's Miss a money Ma-
1: Yep.
2: She uh, she was the voice of Miss Ellie Ewing in the German version of the American soap opera Dallas. <laughs> Oh, and, and, and 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 possibly possibly one of the most entertaining of all. She was also Wilma Flintstone in the German language dub of The Flintstones. Wow, uh, which so by, she's a yeah, superstar. Which, uh, in case you're wondering, is called the uh, Familie Familie Feuerstein in German.
1: Uh, what the family's made out of rock? Uh, well,
2: Firestone, right? Or Flint Flintstone? Uh, you you, know, you can look it up on YouTube if you want to hear uh, middle-aged Inga Landgut. Being Wilma Flintstone,
0: so yeah, as, uh, the voiceover work as compared to the adult film industry, uh, yeah. I guess it's a living. Yeah,
2: <laughs> but she was not an adult actress; she was she was an actress as an adult working in German television. Um, so yeah,
0: so and the the question really here is who who is the murderer, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, and a lot of the notes I have in 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 my. Um, uh, rewatching of this, are kind of thematic. We we have a lot of, um, and especially for its era, it's uh, <laughs> very stark. A lot of people, a lot of neighbors turning each other in, a lot of people pointing the fingers at each other and, and uh, at other strangers
1: in the street. But Eddie, I think you get this a lot of times when you have something like this, when like the police put like a mass like dragging out, like you know, for the hillside stranglers for Ted Bundy. You had girlfriends turning their boyfriends in wives turning husbands in, so I think it's just like gave everybody an excuse for either anybody who they thought was weird or just for payback and being a fucking uh, looking for revenge on somebody
0: so that that's one theme i 'd like to just put put a pin in we'll we'll, we'll go back to that mm-hmm. so we go back to the streets and uh Peter Laurie is uh following her and he begins whistling a jaunty tune
2: yes it's uh it's from it- it's from the Pierre Gims suite. It's from the, the Hall of the Mountain King. Uh, and we have intercuts between this and the apartment where Frau Beckman is making lunch. Uh, she hears footsteps on the stairs, their kids running up the stairs. No Elsie, however. Hans Spekels, that is to say Peter Laurie's character, is buying a balloon for
1: Elsie. this when I saw this part, I was like, all right, we have to do it on, we have to do it on the show. just from this, how they did this whole fucking thing with the balloon. mm hmm
0: I would say the, the balloon and then just the, the filming, uh, so many of the angles that they use in here inform what horror will, will become, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, specifically like a lot of the, the shots of the, like the empty stairway, like you said, or with the dinner being set in the, uh, the empty chair uh, and then eventually her, her ball rolling into an empty field.
1: Yeah, because I think it goes from the empty chair to the empty staircase to like an empty, looks like the laundry room or something, and then you see the ball just rolling and then the balloon going up in the air and getting caught in the electrical wires. And you know exactly what just happened.
2: In fact, you're, and you're, you're pre, you're pre, you have premonitions of it earlier on. <laughs> There's another thing that we should note that happens in the course of these intercuts, which is that the doorbell rings on the Beckman apartment, um, and you see Frau Beckman runs to the door. She thinks maybe Elsie has lost her key or whatever. Maybe this is the way she always comes in. It's not Elsie. It's a man named Herr Gauka who is delivering the latest number of a serial crime magazine that Frau Beckman presumably reads. It may be one of the few like diversions and otherwise seems like kind of a bleak life.
1: Was this a thing? Because I was like, is he yep. delivering
2: books? like deli- It's like a deli- magazine he's subscription he's with delivering? He's delivering like a pulp, the equivalent of a pulp magazine. Uh, every like week or something like that, he comes by and he drops off another one. Uh, that's his job. And she, you know, presumably Frau Beckmann reads these things as they come out. And so we have the horrendous irony that you know Frau Beckmann is reading a crime serial while a real serial killer is in the process of doing it, her daughter. Uh,
0: yeah, true crime is happening right under her nose while she distracts herself with
2: yep, fiction. With, with fictional crime.
1: Well, yeah, that's what makes it more attractive. That's what's going to draw more people to it because now they got that whistle whetted from the newspapers and now here's some guy coming, knocking on my door, bringing it right to my house.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, we uh, the, then I have, after the ball rolling,
2: uh, we cut to the newsies <sighs> the next day. Extra ausgabe, extra ausgabe, running down the street. Uh extra, yeah, extra edition. Uh and people are of course mobbing the newsies they want to get the, the news.
0: But you know, you uh, you don't just get the news. You gotta subscribe to know, sir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you you can't read the article that talks about the killer that that might be in your neighborhood. You better you gotta pay for it. it's great advertising. So now we cut back to uh uh Peter Lorre, and he's uh, writing a letter while he whistles his jaunty tune of In the Hall of the Mountain King. And uh, it's funny, One of the, the, I, because I saw this movie years and years and years and years ago, and what, because of my horrible lack of culture, <laughs> what it reminded me of is the game uh, Mountain King on the Atari 2600. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's which is funny because then if you start going into the the uh, history of horror in video games It is largely considered to be one of the first horror video games Which is funny because uh, in in the Hall of the Mountain King there's nothing that necessarily Horrific about it. It, It's uh... I don't
1: even think I remember that game at all
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm just saying for, for the song itself but but uh,
2: Although it marks something very frightening in, in, the, in the play, Pyrkint. because like, like an army of trolls or something that's coming to like tear the protagonist apart or something like that. And this is the music that was written along with it.
0: Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, yeah, we, we have him uh, writing a letter. And uh, the note that I have is, he, boy, he just has better handwriting than I do. He really does.
1: <laughs> Same here. I've um, always been told, Eddie, though, that uh, the more smart you are, the worse your handwriting. No, that's that's not why true. you can never read doctors' prescriptions no. or anything that they no, write.
0: No, no, down, no, no! Right? Don't, don't um the, the the science behind like assessing a person's intelligence or any uh, anything about them based on their handwriting is, handwriting is not a science. Uh, I, I'm more kind of like
2: measuring skulls. Well, yeah, like, don't tell technology. that to the gra- don't tell that to the graphologist we're going to build later on. <laughs> the <laughs> graphologist. <laughs>
0: Oh yes, oh, I have so many notes on that guy. He's clearly projecting. Um so yeah, we uh say in, in, in his letter he's he's very uh um forthright that he is not thrilled with the press because he had written to them before and he said, "Look, No, he, he wrote,
1: wrote to the police and the police, the police didn't That's right. put it in the newspaper." So now he's just cutting out the middleman and going straight to the newspapers.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he says, "Look, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep doing this because you, you guys need to, uh, you need to publish my work. What, what I'm, what I'm talking about here, or I'm, go- I'm going to continue, basically, and uh, it's, it's interesting because it, it strikes as like a cry for help, a little bit more than just a, a taunting, right? So, and and the other note I have is it reminds me of." Uh, with with Jack the Ripper, you know, saucy Jack, the, the the everybody's folk hero of his of his era. There were so many accounts of fake letters that were being written and given to the press. Not to mm-hmm. mention of the press themselves writing their own fake letters just just to sell newspaper.
1: Well, it's got to be a gigantic money maker and a chance for. Oh, you're always going to have the crazies who are going to come out of the woodwork for something like that. Yes. and you're going to have the grifters and the con men who are coming out trying to sell fake letters.
2: There's apparently.
1: Then, yeah, I'm uh, sorry. sorry. Okay.
2: There, if you read, there's apparently uh, in the 1990s, uh, film scholars discovered uh, the an omitted scene uh, from this movie, not in celluloid. But in the censorship cards given to the you know, given to the, the state of Prussia censors to get the movie approved, uh, in which you have Carl Lohman ranting about the fact that they're getting thousands of fake letters. Well, I um, think
1: at one point they do go into that whole thing with all yep. the letters that they're getting, and it's all like bullshit and just gossip.
2: Yep, the civilian cooperation. <laughs> um, yeah, he's pretty, he's pretty mad about it. So yeah, there's obviously there's all that going on so what happens immediately the press prints the letter right and what 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 part of the press prints the letter tempo uh that that tabloid we're going to be seeing over and over again um there's the news which is posted again on like a poster wall and there's a very there's something very weird going on here i mean you've got a mob of people reading it but there's also an irony um which is that if you if you know a little german it becomes a little more salient that the placard announcing the murder is surrounded by placards of other kinds and these are all announcing various agreeable diversions that are available to you if you live in berlin dancing lessons boxing matches uh cabarets and so forth and there seems to be a kind of sly suggestion here that Surreal murder might in its own way just be another one of those diversions for many of the people here
1: or that it's also something that's like this is prime time to put your ad up here because this is where the newspaper is coming out with all the juicy details every day. Yep. So everybody's going to be coming to this billboard to read instead of going to the billboard across the street that's not giving all the juicy details.
0: Yep. Tim, yep. are you suggesting this is all clickbait?
1: <sighs> hmm.
2: Could be mm-hmm. right. Serial Original murder. Clickbait. Serial murder as entertainment. Called out in a movie, which is serial murder as entertainment.
1: Well, really? it's enough of a business that there's some dude walking around fucking Berlin and Dusseldorf selling fucking uh, crime novels out of his backpack.
2: Right. Well, it's a living cut to a stumtish. Tim, you may, you we have gotten seen. A, I sent you like an illustration. Uh, I said I looked at this when I was rewatching the movie and said, these guys they're sitting around a table smoking and drinking.
1: <sighs> and I said, the amount of smoke in this movie. Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
2: This is this doesn't even get hit to a tenth of it. I said to this though, this is right out of George Gross, and I sent, it, sent him a picture, you know, to illustrate uh, a, an ink illustration from George Gross. Um, you know, that looks exactly like that. And then, god damn it! Like the commentary track on Criterion, put on said exactly the same thing. I feel like a hack. <laughs> um,
1: no, you said it first. So no, <laughs> unless you've already saw the Criterion, collection, no, no, then you said it. You're not it's, a hack.
2: It's just what I. It's just what I. It's just what I, just what I thought. It um, means
1: you could work for criterion doing commentary on their movies. I don't know, that wouldn't be bad. But uh, well, I guess I'll have to like write
2: some more film criticism or something before they, they'll consider me. But anyway, the Stomtish, we get more sense of the mob atmosphere because a fight mm-hmm. breaks out among the drinkers, one of whom accuses the other of following a little girl up the stairs of her apartment building. Uh, so obviously society is falling apart. Yeah. Um, and then we cut to another scene where we see some working class Berliner, someone named Jaeger, complaining about having a search warrant served on him, and the detective doing the search, who I think uh, is the same Inspector Graeber, who we're going to see a lot more of later in the movie.
0: Mm-hmm. I believe it is, um, yeah.
2: Yep. Played, played by Theodore Loes, who would reappear in Long's Testament of Dr. Mabusa. lost um, my place here? You know, he said, the guy, he's explaining very patiently, look, we have to conduct all these searches. There's a child killer out there. We have to do all these things and things. Meanwhile, become more and more hysterical in Berlin. You know, a little girl stops and asks a, little, a dapper little man, the time. Uh, another element of, is it to her that he's promptly confronted by this huge working class man. Yeah. Uh, the size differences being emphasized by long by using wildly exaggerated camera angles.
1: Yes. Yeah. He's like Andre the Giant.
2: Yep. Although in one shot, you see that they're really only about a foot in height apart. Um, and, you know, he basically, you know, so this guy. Well, I think,
1: to... yeah, I think you're right there, Faustus. But yeah. I think when you first see him, you're seeing him from the old man's point of view. So I yep. think that's why it looks like he's gigantic and towering over him.
2: Right. So, yeah, know, this generates, and then a bus pulls up. and it, You know, a, a cop is just calling a guy for being a pickpocket somebody says the word child murder and it just degenerates into another, yeah. the mob scene that we've seen before.
0: Yeah. It's a, basically a montage of everybody laying the blade on any neck that they can, that they can find. And th- this is really like, it's so funny how cyclical this kind of a uh, mentality in a culture is. And, and, and we see it repeated over and over and over again. Um, conspiracy theory grows from this, uh, Fear culture that is perpetrated by, uh, I mean, the news trying to trying to make a buck is as, as well, you Could know. Be. Yeah, yeah. Is uh, entertainment killing children, or is killing children entertainment? You know, uh, inquiring
1: minds want to know.
0: <laughs> exactly, and that's like you said that that's kind of where we're at here, and yet our killer remains uncaught. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, what do you do? We've uh, well, we've tried just blaming everybody that, that uh, tangentially could potentially be a suspect. I, I suppose at this time we should probably uh, figure out what evidence, if any, we have and call in the experts.
2: Right. So now the, it's becoming political. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. We, uh, we get a close-up on Beckert's letter, now reproduced in fact on the front page of Tempo. Uh, we can read the date on Tempo. By the way, it's November Monday, November seventeenth, nineteen thirty. The someone, Minister of the Interior, is yelling at the Berlin Chief of Police on the phone, and the Police of, Chief of Police is busy defending, uh, you know, his, the work of his department by going into what is basically looks like a police training film, uh, a montage of police methods, fingerprints. Uh, and then we get the police graphologist. I don't know what you guys thought, but I thought he looked like Dr. Strangelove. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> before whatever accident put him in his wheelchair. And he's just, you know, he's going on and on about sexual pathology through handwriting.
0: Yeah, he, the the quote that he has about the sexual pathology from the handwriting, by the way, it's, the, this pseudoscience phrenology stuff is, is, I don't know why it is. He, he says, um, the aforementioned diamond shaped and swelling swoops, clearly seen in the word soon, third line from the bottom, attest to the strongly pathological sexuality of the sex offender, period.
1: And it's AKA like bullshit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's trying to meet his word count. You know, <laughs> he's writing his article. He's getting paid by the hour. Oh, my God. It's ridiculous yep
2: so they go on and on the chief of police protests. his men are wearing out they're all working 12 hour shifts they're searching crime scenes everywhere yeah. they they use a candy wrapper as their one
0: clue yeah and
2: then they use it this, this a pretty cool shot of a compass drawing circular concentric circles on a giant yeah. map he's yeah, creating uh, with a the radius. scenes in the middle yeah. and they go out they interview a bunch of confectioners you know mickey mouse is actually actually presence in one good thing I that the
1: uh yeah well Walt Disney was in Germany for a long time
2: Americanism modernity uh good thing that Disney's property lawyers were effective back then yeah. uh you know wit- witnesses are interviewed they disagree with each other we get a good use of this kind of in-your-face shot that seems to that long seems to really like uh where like somebody's lunging almost toward the camera uh and yelling at us Uh, We see a couple of those. We'll see more of them in the future. They search railroad stations. They search what they call the criminal districts. Mm -hmm. Uh, We get some nice proto-noir shots of some of Berlin's darker and danker streets, complete with streetwalkers. Uh, And now we get up to the raid at the Crocodile Club.
0: Yeah. And and we, I mean, at this point, as one of the uh, wonderful criminals... uh, out there there are more uh, a police on the streets than whores so you know there's a problem
1: <laughs> uh, well, this is Monday the... night
2: uh, yeah. this is an amazing scene though because it's shot in complete silence
0: yes yes
2: um I mean partly this was to cut the budget yeah but it also it has it works great because we have the sense of like cars pulling up and formations of police marching down the street It's all silent, it's all very ominous. It gives us a very military preparation feel. Uh, The silence is finally broken when there's a whistle and the patrons in this underground club attempt to flee. But it's too late, the cops are here, there's only one exit, Uh, they're on their way down. Uh, There's got a great shot of a screaming, cursing woman bar patron or possibly prostitute being carried down the stairs. Yeah, I wrote wrote down, one lady's got a lot of spunk. Oh yeah. And down the stairs comes our, I guess, kind of hero, Carl Lohmann. Yeah. Um, Well, he's certainly a cop that they all seem to know. Interestingly, like Beckert, he appears first as a shadow on the wall. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And then he comes up, and he basically tells everyone to be quiet after they jeer him for a while. Obviously, everyone knows the guy. Uh, And he's, I guess, in some sense, a respected cop. Uh, He makes everybody line up. He makes everybody show their papers this guy by the way i'll note for the mm. character he is played by an actor named Otto Wernicke um who will also appear as the same role as Carl Lohmann in the testament of Dr. Mabuse in 1933. Hmm. um He's he would continue he would continue as an actor in, in Germany after the takeover by the Nazis which was difficult for him because his wife was Jewish um but he managed to get around that with a, some kind of special permit and a large donation to the Nazi party. Mm. And also being willing to appear in the Nazi propaganda effort, epic Kohlberg. Uh, we will see other examples of this in the career of other peoples in this movie. The yeah. Nazis could be kind of pragmatic about it when popular entertainment was at stake. Well, they're uh, useful. So. Yep, they are useful. Mm. And Wernicke was a fine actor and he was useful for them in this way. So they're all down there, they're all forced to line up. Uh, there are repeated cries of Alex, Alex, which means that's where people are going uh, to the big police complex at Alexanderplatz. Um, and he, you know, he finds that most of these guys have fake papers or no papers or they're criminal suspects in some other crime. Uh, there's a scene with a shady character being hauled out of the ladies' room by a uniformed cop. Yeah. Uh, our date we can tell from one of the confiscated newspapers is now November twenty-first. Uh, and one of the greatest things about I thought about this particular scene, uh, aside from Lomon, you know, being funny with the you know criminal suspects, is we get an inventory shot. This is terrific. All oh, the burglar yeah. tools, oh, yeah, yeah. weapons, valuables, Aww. furs, yeah, you know, wallets that are confiscated from this club. Or uh, this bad guy bar or whatever it is yeah. uh, that are lined up that the police have gotten, uh, but no serial killer.
0: Uh, no, no, not and what at, we're looking for.
2: At the end, we get a nice scene between a police captain and the barkeeper, um, who you know, says that whoever's committing these murders is going to be in. She says he's going to be in real trouble. Oh yeah, the, the crooks catch him. Yeah, you know, and she says the girls here. This is a great speech. They solicit. Oh, yeah but in each one of them beats a mother's heart. And there are some tough guys when they see the little ones at play. If they ever catch this guy, they'll make toothpicks out of them. Yeah. And I have a casting note here, by the way, this woman who plays the, the uh, keeper of the Crocodile Club is Rosa Valetti, mm-hmm. uh, who's another really important figure actually in, Weimar, in the Weimar cultural world. Um, she had actually run herself a number of important Berlin cultural institutions. In the early 20s, she was the proprietress of something called the Café Größenwahn, or the Café Megalomania, uh, which was one of the most important literary and political cabarets in Berlin. She's another link that this movie makes to Bertolt Brecht. Um, I mean in the corkboard of my mind with the strings and stuff. There's like a, a name, there's a <laughs> card for Bertolt Brecht, and there's a lot of strings running to that, mm-hmm. which there's almost always going to be. She play, it was the original, um, played the original Mrs. Peachum. In the first stage production of the three penny opera. Uh and in addition to her cabaret and stage work, she appeared in a number of motion, many important motion pictures. This very year she has a role of the Blue Angel. Uh so she's a big she's a big deal, even if she has a small part. Uh and she went oh, into exile in nineteen thirty. She
0: delivers it so phenomenally though.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, she's yeah. like a great tough girl.
0: Oh yeah. <coughs> yeah, and and her speech and uh it kind of encapsulates that, like, look, the, the criminal element of, of Berlin, they pragmatically also want this guy gone, because look at you. you The police are so ever-present that we're no longer able to conduct business as usual.
1: Yeah, that's a running theme through this whole thing, where it's like the cops and the criminals both realize that they're both on – just two sides of two different sides of the same coin they have yes. different businesses and they both know what they're in for but this guy is just fucking everything up for both of them
0: yep, yep. Yeah, it's a huge problem for, for, for both sides
2: so what do we cut to now we're half an hour into the movie a lot has happened yeah now we're inside we're inside a bad guy apartment. yeah it's uh, <laughs> just to say it's kind of a typical bourgeois apartment, but there are a lot more pictures of naked women on the walls mm-hmm. than you would expect in a more respectable establishment. Mm-hmm. The, one of the guys is looking at the window. He's wow, truck. Faustus!
1: That fucking Blu-ray really paid off, didn't it? Yeah,
2: it sure does. I love Blu-ray, <laughs> mm-hmm. this is, yeah, this, Same. Especially when watching a movie by someone like Fritz Lang, who was so painstaking with every yes. detail.
0: I mean, not like um, like like Faustus. You you keep mentioning the date, right? And and, uh, if you go and look at the calendar back in November of 1930, Monday was the 17th, right? It it all lines up accurately. It wasn't just, you know, to to show time as passage either. He, yeah, Fritz Long, what was, I mean, attention to detail,
2: In one of the um, interviews on the disc with Howard Nebensall, who is the son of the producer, Uh, and who was about eight years old, he thinks, at the time that he was taken to see the set and to meet Fritz Lung. He said he was actually apparently on the set when the scene at the Crocodile Club was being filmed. Oh, wow. And and Lung uh, saw something on the table, which was basically a cigar, a cigar burning in an ashtray. Mm-hmm. And he said, there are, that pile of ashes is not enough. Um, wow you know, this is this is not <laughs> sufficient for the kind of place that this is this is, there would be a lot more
1: ashes so yeah, they're everyone... not dumping out the ashtrays every time they bring you a drink
2: so everyone on the set had to stop while Fritz Long picks up the cigar and smokes away to make more ashes to pile them up in the to pile them up in the ashtray that's... so that they can then go and take that shot that looks to his mind like it ought to look so i guess the kind of that's the kind of guy i guess Fritz Long was
0: yeah, he had a well vision. didn't he
2: also use real criminals too? I think that's that. Yeah. yeah, I think he probably well I mean, Berlin was full of underworld figures, so he sort of you know it wouldn't be it wouldn't have been hard to avoid them if he wanted mm-hmm. to have a lot of uh, as they would say background.
0: Right? You know I'm I'm reminded of uh, Uwe Uva Bowl and Blood Rain when he couldn't. That's find... what, yeah, when I
1: read that, that's what <laughs> I thought too. Yeah, why go would out and pay an actor? Just go out and get some guy who's find really a pickpocket?
0: Actresses to be nudes, so he hired uh prostitutes. <laughs> Oh, man. So the great minds think alike, you know, Tim?
1: Yeah. You evolve, you hack.
2: So anyway, there, there are truckloads of people being carried away from the, the Crocodile Club. Yeah. And they're waiting for the arrival of some ominous master criminal figure they call Deschranka, the safecracker. They're going to yes. have some kind of meeting. Uh, mm. and, you know what you have you know, to do
0: before a... the meeting, though, Faustus. Sorry. You know what you have to do before the meeting, though, Faustus, is everybody should probably call, get the time, and synchronize their watches.
2: Yes. And there's a character called the Pickpocket, with is yes. deep. He calls, like, some government office where someone tells him that the time is 2.458 in the morning.
1: Well, you so used to, to do that. There used to be a number that you could
2: call yep. up and get the
1: time and get the weather.
0: Popgun Popcorn yep. time.
1: But they probably didn't connect you to like a live person. It was like a recording, right? Right. No, but I do remember you used to be able to call up the operator and ask them what time it was, too. And they wouldn't like yell and scream at you or hang up. They would tell you what the time was.
2: Oh, well, well, you know, we're a protected monopoly. We can do that. Um, but he pulls out his watch. Then he pulls out another watch. Then he pulls out another watch. <laughs> then he pulls out another watch. And he synchronizes them all. Yeah. He's
0: a pickpocket. So he I, I love box. some of the, the humor elements in this movie hit so well, <laughs> by the way.
2: Yep. There's another guy in the corner. He's called the Fallspieler. He's mm-hmm. playing with doctored cards. Yeah. There's a character right. named Franz, uh, a burglar who's sitting in the corner in Broods. Uh, and oh, during... you mean the
1: guy looks like Charlie Bronson?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then there's another crime guy. He's in this, I think, in the. he's called Bauernfinger or the con man. Uh, he's played by what is probably like the most interesting actor here, other than Gustav Gringens, who. Um, He's another link to Brecht. He had played Mac Heath in the Three Penny Opera. He had an affair and apparently a child with Brecht's wife, Mariana Zoff. Mm. Um, and he married Zoff shortly after he divorced Brecht. Um, his marriage to Zoff would create problems for him when the Nazis came to power. Uh, but again, this is another case where he was useful enough uh, that you know, they were willing to look the other way. Uh, the guy's name was Theo Lingen. Uh, he also appears in Testament of Dr. Nabusa. Hmm. So all these Berlin crime lords are hanging around fine. You know, Franz tells a story about Schenka who once escaped, you know, a bank robbery where he's surrounded by the Scotland yard. Uh, and, you know, when it was all over, there were three dead men on the ground, but he wasn't one of them. Uh, the bell rings, it's Schenka. He refuses to enter the apartment until someone draws the blinds. Yes.
0: Very smart.
2: <laughs> yep. Yes. Good move. Well, when this happens he comes in and now a meeting happens um and the meeting is cross-cut in an amazing way yes. with another meeting being taking place presumably at the same time with the top you know the top people in the berlin police
0: and i just have here the wire you hack portraying the criminal <laughs> element and the police department in similar fashions
2: it's the, the misery of visual management but unlike the wire this is the smokiest pair of meetings oh, I, I think have ever <laughs> been put on film.
1: Everyone Eddie, didn't is... I say something to you about like I couldn't believe the amount of smoke that they generated in this fucking movie? Not it was even, incredible.
0: Not even the amount of smoke. The the, the uh, diversity of smoking vessels. I I mean, yeah, I
1: never knew there was cigar holders. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. I was like, that holders. guy put a fucking cigar in his pipe. Was he a stupid? Fucking drunk? But then when you see those beer steins,
0: oh yeah,
1: I might put my cigar on my pipe too.
2: Yep. I don't know what I think. That probably is, was designed mm-hmm. to work that way. Everyone in these meetings is smoking except oh, yeah. for Shrinker. Shrinker is not smoking. And I gotta tell you, Shrinker is the most
1: charismatic badass. In
0: this God movie. damn it, he, he is.
1: is. He's a he is, cracker. so yeah. in the yeah. criminal element, he's like the top of the line, right? He's, he's like he's the this, professor. He he's looks like, like
2: you know. he looks like the Aryan Superman. Um, yeah, he, you know, he's, got his, he's got his badass black leather coat. He has black leather gloves, which he apparently never takes off. He wears a bowler hat um, most of the time. I thought that's Mackie, right? That's the top gangster right there. Yeah. Right. yeah. And as, it tur- as, as it turns out, uh, he is played by Gustav Gründgens, mm-hmm. who is one of the most influential of 20th-century German actors. Yes. Um, he appeared in this, is this role. He also played Mephistopheles in Faust mm-hmm. in 1960. Very famous. Uh, And he seems to be close to the center of the German cultural elite as just about anybody. Uh, He married for a couple of years one of the daughters of Thomas Mann. Uh, He uh, and Paul Falkenberg, who was the editor to this movie, uh, snarked about it. He said, it must not have been much of a marriage because Grüngens was one of the biggest homosexuals in town. Uh, (laughs) He worked with Otto Klemperer at the Kroll Opera. Uh, his role in the Nazi era is hotly disputed. He was the artistic director of the Prussian State Theater and a member of the Heiksteatakama, and seems to have enjoyed the protection of the time yes. of both Goering and Goebbels, which is a little unusual when you're one of the biggest homosexuals in town. But again, this is another example But again, of useful, yep. Yep. Um, he appears to have intervened to have saved the life of the famous communist actor, Ernst Busch, From execution in 1943, and Bush would return the favor after the war to get Grungens out of custody of the NKVD because they had him at that time. So, and uh, you know, just but he 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 brings that he he just really brings it for this. Yes, he does. Yeah, he's he's something that everyone's going to be afraid of but sort of admire.
0: Yeah, yeah. he uh, he played fucking Mephistopheles. I mean, come on.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You got to be able to steal the scene if you can do that. Yeah. So anyway, we have these cross-cutting meetings.
2: Everyone is coming with, te- you know, ideas of various terribleness. Yeah, yeah. Trying to come up, how are we going to find this guy?
0: How ah, but a big uh, a handsome reward, right? That that'll do it.
2: Uh, let's put an article in the newspaper, disavowing any connection with, you know, that sort of thing. Maybe
0: more the, ID the, checks, more informants.
2: The, the, the crooks have, you know, like a different problem from the cops which is that, you know, the cops are making it impossible for them to live. Right. Um, and so there's the element of time then. But for The police time is mounting up and the political situation is becoming worse. People smoke and smoke. And then eventually, uh, I, can't, I just can't believe how much people smoke. It's, I, I shouldn't keep coming back to it, but it's just, it's just astonishing. It, it, um, no, it, it,
1: <laughs> Faustus, it is incredible. The amount, I've never in my life, I can't believe how anybody, even a smoker, and I was a smoker for like 35 fucking years. I would not be able to... I would be like, I got to get out of here and get some fucking fresh air and have a cigarette outside yeah. at least. So <laughs> I
0: enjoy cigars, and, and uh, recently I've converted over to a pipe. And that, for me, <laughs> is uh, maybe... That's a picture I want to once see. Once every you two with weeks. with a pipe. Oh, yeah, yeah. I look very dapper. <laughs> yeah, but, but maybe I'll, 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 uh, I'll go to that, well, maybe once every two weeks. You know, you have a nice... Uh, uh, Scotch, or, or uh, I, I suppose I should, uh, uh, in honor of uh, uh, Beckett here, uh, switch over to cognac. Uh, <laughs> but man, these guys, yeah, through this entire movie, the, just the amount of smoke, ridiculous.
2: But this scene, I think, is this scene is probably is peak smoke. Oh yeah, uh, like you can almost not see. It's, it's hard to sometimes see people's faces. Yeah, you have it on Blu-ray, there's... so Jesus Christ. So. Yeah. anyway they do they come to conclusions um for the for the cops it's we're gonna like go and ask every insane asylum uh every nervous clinic everyone who might have released somebody
0: yeah
2: uh as a non-threat to like you know come to us and say who they are and where they are that's a silence of the lambs tactic by the way uh so you know jonathan demi you hack uh (laughs) and then the quirks come up with a much more interesting and creative idea which is that we have to put the entire city under surveillance. How are we going to do that? Right. Um, and and we have this great overhead shot with the same map we saw with the cops before, mm-hmm. except with 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 Gringos with the um, Schranker's open hand in its black leather glove sitting on the center of Berlin. It looks like a black leather spider, um, you know, going through the streets. Yeah. And he says, "I have, you know, I have no idea who can be seen all the time without ever raising suspicion." beggars we are going to enlist the beggars the bettler the organization the bettler we're going to get them to watch the city Um john wick you hack yeah. so and you know then we see that in the organization and if he says it, it's an it's a it's an interesting idea and by the way it's another it's another like callback i think to wrecked because of course you know who is the most biggest organization in london in the three penny opera the beggars. Yeah. They're the, the they're the problem there. They're the threat. Here they're just observational. And of course they have a giant organization. Yeah. And we go to the beggar headquarters, which looks pretty oh, I pretty, love this fucking pretty, scene. Yeah. Looks looks pretty dope actually for like beggars. I mean, yeah. And yeah. they got
1: a sense of, they got pretty a nice, nice sense of uh, humor too with some of the signs yep. they have yeah. up there. <laughs> yeah.
2: Credit <laughs> oh. is dead. They have smokes, so they have beer, they yeah. have sandwiches.
1: Well, the guy has cigarettes, he has them like in all stages, like from how close down, burnt down to the butt they are, to like perfect ones. Yeah. Yep. And then you got the the two people at the table who are like fucking doling out food that they must have found in the garbage, whether or not it's eat whether or not it's uh, edible. So I thought it was really good. And then the sign where it says no beggars. Yeah. Right. Well they're <laughs> selling
2: those sandwiches. Did you know that you see the the you saw the blackboard? Like yeah. they actually have prices,
1: uh, have fluctuating. Yeah, prices. Yeah, because he their... says, "Like Liverwurst is not demand for it, so it went down." Yep,
2: yep, yep. yeah. This is a parody of like a, the stock exchange, essentially. Yeah, it, basically, um, yeah, yeah. Supply and demand, right? Yeah, it's a yeah, it's the it, it's the underworld parodying the the overworld, I yeah. suppose you might say. It's all capitalism
0: um, all the way down.
2: So yeah, that's a very Brechtian sentiment, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, you have a scene this is like a great parody because you have a long line of beggars. Uh, you know, the, the down and out of society who are lining up to get recruited and enlisted in this observational army being created by uh, Berlin's organized crime. Right. And, and you know they actually come up to the desk. They have their beggar organization. They give their organization number uh, and then they get, they get assignments. And this I think is actually a parody of recruiting from the first world war at the beginning ah people yeah. and but we see the consequences because the person that they are rolling uh someone who gives his name is Emil dusterman has a peg leg yeah uh probably a war wound yeah or probably meant to be inferred to be a war
0: wound. Yeah. Uh,
2: but they sign him up uh the guy who does it has very nice handwriting as well uh everyone in this movie has better handwriting than. yes we do so <laughs> and he goes <laughs> And now we, have, now we have the city is under surveillance.
0: Yeah. And, and yet the irony, though, that, that the, um, the person who will cause the killer to become unstuck is a, uh, uh, a marred beggar, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's the balloon man,
2: Yes, as we'll get yeah. to.
0: Yes, yeah. But, but, I mean, just the irony of, you know, you have the guy with the peg leg. And and who ends up being the uh, uh, the informant with, with the information that's needed? Well, it's a blind man.
2: Yep. Yeah. The eye uh, the ear witness. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, the one no. who can't see, that Peter Lorre looks like a regular, normal-ass person, that even if he looked at him, you would never in a million years think that he was the one who did it.
2: Yeah. Yep. So we go out in the street, an organ grinder <laughs> is organ grinding away, uh, a blind man, supposedly blind gets a donation. Well, I like
1: no, hold on fast, sorry, because when the organ grinder is playing, there's a group of kids all around him, but they're all like 10 or 15 feet away from him, and when he finishes, they throw the coins at him yeah. from like 20 fucking feet away. So like <laughs> yeah, all the that. kids are staying away from all the adults. Good, yeah. good
2: call. Yes, good definitely. Call. Um and but I love the scene where there's also like a supposedly blind beggar with his dog getting a donation from a girl being walked to school. And then it turns out he's not so blind as he turns and watches them. Right. And the dog turns and watches them. Yeah, the them. dog looks too. I really <laughs> like the. I love that dog. <laughs> he's so on the job. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, they're all outside. They're everywhere. And then we have this montage uh, of Ber- bourgeois Berliners going about their business, window shopping, and they're just completely unaware of all the beggars who are around them yes. watching. Oh, and
1: I have a note here too those are some incredible fucking windows yeah oh yeah Yeah. with the fucking ferris wheel going all that other shit the bookstore later on that has the fucking arrow on the fucking rubber band pointing up and down in a book
0: the advertisements and the windows i
2: mean they're next level Mm yeah wow so we're back back at police headquarters loman is doing what he does best which is reading a report uh he corrects spelling um and you know he notes that there is a rough writing surface used to make the letter mm-hmm. that it was red or colored pencil lead. Yes, that it was used. The letter to Tempo. Ah, clues. Then he goes. He gets a bunch of memoranda from hospitals and insane asylums about released patients. This is used to generate a list of possible suspects to run to Earth. So we see the police doing their thing. They're being methodical. They're right. going through records. They're a bureaucracy. That's what they are. And it leads immediately to the next scene where we have Inspector Graeber going to the house of one Elisabeth Winkler, mm-hmm. who, as it happens, is Hans Beckert's landlady. Yes. And mm. a little
1: hard of hearing.
2: A little, a little hard of
1: hearing, yeah. but, but
0: but nice. Kindly, yeah. May, yes. Maybe a little uh, involved in everybody's business, but, you know, only because well, that's she cares. kind of her
1: job, right? Yes. Yeah.
2: So he says, well, I'm from the uh, tax office. Yeah, I love uh, this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> of course, you can't say you're a cop, right? right. But,
1: well, uh, what's going to scare you more? Which one are you going to try so, to please more? If he tells you he's a cop or he's from the tax so, office yeah, and but, you own that apartment building and you're renting it out.
0: And Tim that's, Tim, that's the note that I have in here is if somebody comes to my house and says they're with the police, let them in. If they say they're from the tax office, shoot them. <laughs>
1: Uh, and it was nice knowing you, Eddie. I'll see you in fifteen to twenty years. All right. Oh wait,
2: people who. So you know he he goes to wait to actually search the room. Yeah. following Claire brings him a newspaper so we oh, can know what date it but,
0: is. Oh, but so the note that I have, he he goes to search, right? So he sits down. He stands up to begin to search, and then he hears her coming back in with the newspaper and sits down really quick, like oh she she caught me. I don't I don't want her to see me <laughs> snooping around. <laughs> That's so well done.
2: <laughs> yep. So, you know, here's a newspaper. We now know mm-hmm. the date is November 24th. Yeah. Um, we cut to Beckert, who's out on the street. Yeah. He's buying himself an apple Well, back at the apartment. Again, we get one of these cross cuts showing mm-hmm. like different actions taking place at the same time. Graber checks out the table, not the right kind of table, too smooth. Yeah. You know, looks, views the windowsill, doesn't understand its significance immediately. Right. Goes through the trash. Yeah, you know, finds a couple of things. That mm-hmm. carriage, meanwhile, is at one of these fantastic windows.
0: Yeah, yeah. With uh, is uh, it a
2: is it a cutler shop?
0: So, in, in the thing that I have that, that it remind at this point, I said, "Wow, this reminds me in the club when the police had spread out all of the contraband, right? All of mm-hmm. the the various stolen equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so ornate the way that the the silverware is laid out." In this window this is such a beautiful shot uh,
2: because he's like he's looking and he sees reflections
0: yeah
2: uh and he, he's a little girl um yeah. after you know in the reflection in the window of the cutler shop
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh and she's framed by a display of knives which is terribly ominous. yeah <sighs> um, yes. and he waits he watches her go then he proceeds to follow her he's well, whistling the is
0: two. But before this, he's, so he's eating an apple while he's looking at her in the reflection, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it seeing her reflection, almost it, it almost unnerves him, right?
1: Yeah, I have written that. It almost kind of looks like almost like he's trying to fight it.
0: Mm-hmm. And he starts stretching his lips on the right side of his face a bit in, in the reflection and kind of rocking back and forth. And then, yeah, he, he looks back up, though, and she is gone. And that's, as you said, Faust, is when uh, well, we cue the whistling and he, he walks away.
2: Yep. But he's walking away in pursuit. Yes. Uh, she, she passes the bookstore that uh, Tim mentioned before mm-hmm. with the moving arrow, providing what is possibly huh? this movie's grossest piece of sexual symbolism. <laughs> uh, and then... As well, well as using Aki. So, you the little girl beats her mother uh who sort of sculptures slightly for being away yeah and beckard has to break off his pursuit so he goes across the street Um, to a cafe and he orders coffee no no no, no, cognac Uh, uh, he feebly whistles hall of the mountain king or possibly only hears it in his head it's not clear yeah, because I,
0: he's kind of uh, um, obscured by, uh, like, a tree. Vines. vines. Well, there's vines, one yes.
1: scene where you see through the uh, the vines, and it doesn't look like he's moving his mouth to whistle, but you still hear the whistling, and then he starts to move his lips like he's whistling. So I don't know if All that right. was just the dubbing on the the version that I saw, or if he's supposed to be hearing it in his head.
2: And plus Peter just... Lorich couldn't whistle. Uh, uh wow. who actually did the whistling? Huh. Who who, who dubbed in for him? Who? Oh. Harbo.
0: Oh wow! Yeah. Really?
2: Yeah.
0: Huh. So the the uh, uh, Fritz Lang's wife, the the co-writer. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, and I have the other note that I have here is like you said, the the whistling is feeble and it's broken up. It doesn't sound correct.
2: Mm-hmm. He gets his cognac. He downs it. Single swallow. Yeah, but... Orders another immediately. Downs it. Um... You know he's yeah you know, he obviously has something he needs to like try to to quench or something he needs to soothe um some compulsion maybe yeah yeah, yeah we see him screened up uh, one of the commenters when of the behind these vines he looks like an animal in the jungle
0: yeah oh that's such a good point I on the hunt no. yeah
2: yeah huh meanwhile bureaucracy continues back at police headquarters yeah. Uh, Inspector, Inspector Graeber is giving his report on Hans Beckert's apartment to Carl <laughs> Lumen. There isn't much report, but there is the presence of something. Yeah. Uh, a wrist on cigarettes in the trash. That's it. And Luhmann, something remembers something. He's sitting there. Ariston. Ah, Ariston. Ah, so he calls up and gets a file on uh, another earlier victim of Beckert named Marga Perl. Yep. And he goes through it and he, you know, he, But we cut back to, now it's really heating up. We get back to the blind in the balloon cellar. Yes. Somebody's walking by, whistling this tune from the Hall of the Mountain King. And immediately
0: the blind man recognizes it. He recognizes it, and he, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. I remember hearing that the day the little girl went missing. So he tries feebly to, to follow, right? Because right. unlike our previous blind beggar, he, he actually is blind. Yeah, um, Yeah. he's
2: actually
0: He goes on to follow, but he, he's not doing a very good job of it. So what do you do? Well, you tap out, you call in a friend. And he, uh, he shouts for his friend Heinrich. And he says, Heinrich, there's there someone whistling. Do you, do you hear him? He says, yeah. Oh, but he just stopped. But do you, do you see him? Heinrich says, Yeah, I do. I, I still see him. He's walking down the street with a little girl. And the blind beggar says, Yeah, the day that girl went missing, a person who was whistling like that with a little girl came and bought a balloon from me. And that's all the evidence Heinrich needs.
1: That's right. it. It's good enough to follow him, right? That's yep. what they're getting paid, supposedly getting paid for from the mafia or the, the gangsters. Yeah. Plus, also, I know something weird. The blind guy he has an armband on with like three circles on it. I
2: don't know the reference. I yeah. saw that too. Uh, and I, if I, I had more time, I would have tried to look it up. Yeah, if anybody
1: has if it's it, it's kind of like some kind of like something that people, like maybe handicapped people, wore back then. It's like a symbol, like uh, "I'm blind, be careful." Like you know, maybe possibly. maybe it was well, like the like... Live
0: Strong band that they, everybody used to wear. To,
1: but he's already
2: he is already wearing a sign that says "blind."
0: Yeah, yeah, literally um, around his neck, it just has sure. the word "blind" on it.
2: Yeah, but people don't read.
0: That's true. They could be illiterate, so I guess you need the oh. band.
2: This is this is the most literate culture in the world. There there are 140 <laughs> daily newspapers in 1938. That's true. <laughs> we are at the point where Beckert has been identified. He's been fingered, mm-hmm. and we get a shot of um, this pursuing Heinrich watching Beckert buying a little girl something in an exotic fruit shop. Um, then Beckert and the girl come out. They're talking on the street. He's watching across the street. The little girl cutely courtesies curtsies to Beckert and addresses him as uncle uh which the criterion collection subtitles perhaps a bit prudently translate as mister um becker takes out a knife uh-oh switchblade yep yeah. yep but it's only to cut an orange the sighted man Heinrich, chalks an m onto his hand Then he crosses the street pretends to slip on the orange peel that Beckert just threw on the ground slaps him on the back of the coat rebukes him for littering uh and then, Wol goes on his way. And then in another really creepy moment, this little girl picks up Beckard's switchblade and
1: hands it back to him. Yes, that's right. Yeah, because he drops it when a guy bangs into him. Yep.
0: Faustus, another note that I have here with the chalking the hand and marking his shoulder with the letter M. Of course, you, you got into some of the uh, reasons why maybe the marking of the letter M was used, right? Ooh. Now, this method, though... Of chalking and marking someone's shoulder, this was something that was actually very common in the carnival. Yep. Yes. That's why they call them marks. Exactly. So they would, yeah, put a little chalk mark on a uh, drunk or somebody that they knew that they could fleece and take advantage of and call them marks. Mm hmm.
2: So. so, meanwhile, back at police headquarters, Loman is reading a report again. Um, and he notes that at about 50 meters from the crime scene where Margaret Pearl... Yep. Yeah. Now that Dr. Graeber remembers something. The windowsill in Becker's room has the right pattern to match the hatching in the letter that was sent to the newspaper.
1: Uh-huh. The windowsill.
2: Aha. Uh-huh. So, both Lohmann and Graeber return to the apartment, they check the windowsill, it's the right kind, and Graeber finds the red pencil lid. Lohmann responds, Her Gott, endlich. We know we have someone we can find, yeah. but the chase is already on and the police are behind because a phone call is coming into the bad guy apartment. Uh, the beggars have found their killer. And now we have a, another creepy montage with criminals and, and beggars chasing Becker through the streets, playing cat and mouse. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and doing a handoff, almost like a relay race, right? Mm-hmm. So the one person isn't following him too long as to arouse suspicion.
1: Smart move. Cops yeah. do that, right? Yep.
2: So, Beckert and his prey stop at a toy store. Uh, she notices the letter M on his shoulder, and Beckert realizes he's being pursued. Yeah. So he, he, he breaks off, and he runs. He's, and we see an overhead shot, another one of these ominous, deeply silent shots, where he's surrounded, he sees three pursuers closing in on him. But he manages to duck into an office building
1: well he disappears uh, behind a bus for like a split a fire, second doesn't a fire,
2: he? A fire engine I yeah think. yeah um and then he just dis- ducks into the building meanwhile time is going on a clock strikes five office workers begin to pour out of the building um and then the building is closed up for a night and A security guard salutes a passing policeman yeah um there is a coordination between the beggars and the crime lords um, I mean, inside the building, a security guard notices that a door is ajar to the attic storage space for the offices. Beckert is hiding within inside a storage closet amidst various mm-hmm. junk.
0: And we have a great building of tension here, because the beggars who were trying to to watch over, you know, this building, they're aware that at the strike of five, this, this mob of people is going to leave, and he could, Becker could very easily escape in this mob, you know. And until it is revealed that he's hiding in the storage area, you—you you as the viewer, you—you you don't know, right? He—he he could have been gone. He could,
1: yeah. That's have the slipped away. smart thing they do. That's what you would assume that he would do: is either wash his coat off or take his coat off, yeah. and just get out. When you have five hundred people leaving the office at five o'clock in the afternoon,
0: yeah. But uh, uh, as you said, Faustus, he, he did not. He hides himself in a dingy, dirty storage area. And uh, it's almost like a prison cell, too, with the bars and the lock on the outside.
2: hmm Yeah. So the criminals mobilize, and at 11 o'clock, a policeman, supposedly, shows mm-hmm. up outside to hail security, complain about the gate. Yeah. Uh, the gate is fine, but that's not the issue. The policeman is shrinker, dressed as a policeman. He basically hijacks his way into the building with a gun. Yep. <clears throat> and then, with a whistled signal, you got this huge army of crooks pouring into the building.
0: Yeah, with a whistle, not just a signal, though, with, with a tune, right? Mm-hmm. So, so now we have the uh, shadowy figures pursuing him, whistling their own song. Mm-hmm.
2: A different tune. Yep. Yep. Shrinker successfully tortures a guard into surrendering details of the building's security. Um, and then Beckert is like stuck in his little closet upstairs. And he's locked and he's trying to escape. He's got his knife, yeah. uh, you know, trying to like pull out the lock, but breaks his knife's blades. Yeah. <clears throat> the crooks come into the building, they take out the other watchman and then they begin a search.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> and we cut to what else but another clock.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, now they literally have to beat the clock every time, right? Because somebody has to go around and place the watchman turning the key on the clock to make sure the alarm doesn't go off and, at the police
0: station. Importantly, make sure that the, the clock is set to the appropriate time, otherwise the police will be alerted.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Take, he gives Franz the order to break into the offices, one of the offices by drilling through the ceiling. Yes. Yeah. The door might be wired. So Franz does. Um, meanwhile, you know, someone hears tapping coming from the attic mm-hmm. as they're going around setting the clocks we cut, and we see Beckert trying to take a nail that he's extracted from, like, one of the lock mechanisms into a lockpick lock to try to pick the lock to get out of the storage bin that he's been locked into. Yeah,
0: he's trying to bend it around, like, the the uh, ledge of a step uh, with the, the butt end of his knife, of his broken mm-hmm. knife, to try to make that yeah. nail have, a, a like, a 90-degree bend in it.
1: Yeah. Well, I think later on we're going to see the key that actually fits into the lock. And... He almost got it right with yeah. the fucking nail, just bending it like that.
0: Yeah, he almost nailed it.
1: Yep. Oh god. No <laughs> soundboard for that one? No. On.
0: Uh,
2: that one deserved it. Well, meanwhile, Shrenker and his gang head up, and there's a brief chase through the dark and dadic space. Shrenker has a key he took them from the guards. Mm-hmm. And the excited news meanwhile spreading downstairs back to the guard station, where one of the watchmen revives just long enough to trigger an alarm. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. So now there's a there are two races against the clock. The criminals upstairs yeah. are trying to grab Beckert uh, and then get the hell out of the building before the police show up.
0: Yeah, it is a fantastic building of tension, right? Because the police are supposedly going to be there within five minutes, and the criminals have uh, of course gotten into the storage facility where Beckert is hiding in one of these uh, one of these storage I think units. there's
1: six different storage areas, yeah, yeah, they say.
0: And the the criminals almost give up at this point yep. right they
2: almost they say, almost hey, do we have but to go shrinker has nerves of steel yeah uh he keeps a safe going. cracker right yep he keeps them going until they actually get the guy uh the peter laurie's eyes and the way that they're shot and the way that they're lit yeah. is fantastic in this scene oh yeah you know, he's wide open eyes the, the, the sense of sheer animal fear that seems mm-hmm. to be radiating out beckert knows that something very bad is about to happen yeah uh and so but the hit he gets got they carry him out of the building running out um you know he's all tied up and wriggling and struggling and then we cut to a montage of the damage that's been done in the building (laughs) tied up watchman knocked indoors and uh-oh. Somebody <laughs> forgot Franz.
0: <laughs> Poor Franz.
1: Left him in the hole. Oh, and it's yep. so
0: great, too, because we just see Franz from the hole looking up saying, hey, who who pulled the rope up? Can, can you guys throw the rope back down? So somebody does, uh, unseen, <laughs> off camera. And he, he begins climbing up the rope, gets to the top of it, and realizes ah, shit, it's the police. And they tell him, put your hands up. And he's Looks around. And he says, "Well, I mean, I'm holding on to the rope. I can't really put my <laughs> uh,
1: Again, another little bit of sense of humor in the movie. Almost
0: yep. literal gallows humor.
2: All right. So now Franz is now Franz is basically in the soup, yeah. uh, and he's being interrogated by like some guy, you know, an inspector who probably mm-hmm. deals with you know burglaries of this kind. Yeah. Um, and it's all baffling to them. And he's trying to say, look, you know, buddy, yeah, you broke into you. We collared you. Aren't you mad about being left in the lurch by all your friends? Um, but Franz of course, who's probably spent most of his life in and out of various kinds of uh, legal trouble is sort of wise to this ploy. He says, look, what's going to happen to me? Nothing was taken. Yeah. Uh, just a little property damage. Uh, and so, you know, this fails. The burglary who talks to one of the night watchmen, uh, who you know identifies, who clearly says, "Look, yeah, I clearly heard someone say to another person, we have him.'" Yeah, they're looking um, for somebody. Yep, they're looking for somebody. Yeah, and that he was. So in the B and the B and I guy gets a clever idea. He says, "I'm going to call up Loman." Um, so we see Loman. He calls up Loman. He's in his office. He's drinking the day. Yeah. Um, and the ploy here is a pretty obvious one. All right, he's going to get Loman, who's the murder police, not the burglary police, play along with the ruse to the effect that one of the guards has been killed. Yeah. Uh, one of your boys did it too well. Um, and then we have a Monta- we have a shot with Dick very Way, the watchman sitting there eating like a huge meal,
1: drinking a huge beer. Don't worry, he's alive. Incredible-looking
0: sausage, an amazing-looking mug of beer. I'm is the
1: this biggest man. fucking god that's not even a fucking stein that's a goblet that's of a beer right punch
0: bowl with a handle
1: yeah these, that's, these guys that's a gulp of beers these guys drink beer by the leader yeah
2: basically so he yeah, says you know you're now in real trouble right because this is murder right and so franz you know does not like the idea of what's going to happen to him if he gets convicted for murder uh so he, he breaks, and he says, look, uh, we were looking for someone, uh, we were looking for the child killer. Yeah. And that makes Loban not so smug. Yeah, yeah, he spits out a cigar. His cigar just drops out of his mouth, His expression changes. He's so overcome, he has to actually run out of the room. Yeah. And like,
1: wash up.
0: Well, oh, And he reaches up to, to, to extract the cigar from his mouth, he didn't even notice that it fell out of his mouth, right? Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. well just imagine if you're this cop with all the pressure that he has on him and this just falls into your lap
0: i mean this is it right this is the
2: big one
1: or the closest thing to the big one that you've ever had so far right yeah yep and um
2: one of the things there's a small detail by the way that i noticed in one of the one of these shots Mm -hmm. which is that there is actually a bed in in yes i saw that Yeah. yeah he's been living in his office for this case yeah um that's that's how stressful the whole thing has been so he comes back out and he says okay you gotta tell me where were you taking this guy and Franz explains that they're taking someplace something called the Kunz and Levy Distillery uh, an organization that went bankrupt you know presumably about seven years before we get some shots of a very scary looking industrial ruin uh, which I guess is meant to be the distillery so now the criminal underworld is gathering. Yeah, in a deep and an ominous vault of brick space. It, it it's
0: basically reminiscent... it's the place where uh, uh, the end of hostile took place.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Or it's reminiscent of a dungeon, really.
0: Yeah, it really is. Yeah,
2: yep. Um, and you know they pull Beckert out. Uh, of whatever space they're holding. He's screaming at the warders, this is a a mistake, you can't do this to me. Uh, What is going on? And then Laurie turns around and he sees something like 200 criminals all lined up behind Shrinker. Oh yeah, that that place is packed. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a slow, slow pan across all these underworld figures and they're all dead silent. Yeah. And he, and he just bugs out.
0: It is ominous. I mean, it is the, one of the most intimidating shots I've seen in a film in, in a long time.
1: Well, you have to figure, even though they're criminals, whatever, they still despise him because what's the lowest thing that you can be in prison? Somebody who does fucked up shit to kids. Well, and they're... even though they must have kids, so they must have been afraid for their own kids, and now they finally got them in their own hands.
0: So I would say that it's half that. I would say that it is half, yes, this person is killing children, and the other half of it is this person is bringing the police onto us. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, definitely. Opportunistically, we need to get rid of this man.
1: Uh, yeah, but you see the revulsion that they're looking at him too. So it's yeah. Let's yeah. say it's fifty fifty. Look, it's it's a good thing. It works out for both things for them, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. it's a happy coincidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh yeah. And uh, I, I just have yeah that he's he's screaming at them, calling them swine. Initially, they throw him down these stairs. He sees, like you said, at least two hundred men, and he. He begs. He pleads for mercy from them. Mm -hmm. And uh, someone puts his hand on his shoulder
2: and it's the blind man. Right. The old blind vendor and his words are Das ist kein Irrtum. This is no error. And he shows Beckert the balloon identical to the one that he sold when Beckert was leading Elsie Beckert astray. or Elsie Beckman astray. And this Um, balloon,
1: I don't know if we said it before, but this balloon, this is a balloon shaped like a kit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's very important, though, if you're going to have a trial like this, you at least want to have an eyewitness.
1: Uh, That's why you use it? (laughs) For real?
0: (laughs) Well, I think the irony is not lost, right? The uh, the blind man is their eyewitness, but...
1: Well, no, I see. I think what my interpretation of it is The guy who can't see is -hmm. the one who catches him because, like I said, he's not fooled by looking like somebody who looks like Peter Lorre. That's not somebody who you're going to think is this terrible fucking devil going around killing kids and getting away with it and scoffing at the police, and everybody in fucking Germany is looking for him. You're not going to think it's Peter Lorre. But just hearing him and Mm. being able to put two and two together, the blind man is the one who figures it out.
0: Yeah, but this... uh, So this court scene isn't... So, so much a court scene. It's a, well, it's a kangaroo court, of course. It's we already know how this is going to turn out for
1: for him. Uh. They're just going through the formalities. They're trying to give themselves a clean conscience,
2: right? But they did. They did give him defense counsel. I don't. I, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't know what this is actually supposed to mean or why they, what their motivation is, um, exactly. These are not people who seem to have much of a conscience,
1: but... Yeah, but you can't say, Faustus, you can't say all 200 of those people that are in there are all hardened murderers, right? There's no. pickpockets in there, there's con men, all that shit. No, so just the lead prosecution. Like a, yeah, I think this is something that's just like to get them all like, well, we all are in it, we agreed on it, it's been done to us, because I think there's a line where they've all been in jail from either six weeks to 60 years. Mm. So cool. they all know the law and all that stuff, and yeah. they're just doing their own justice, and this is going to clear their conscience. Well, like We didn't in, just kill this
0: guy. In the dub that I have, yeah, there, there is the comment, each one of us is a legal expert, as each one of us has served at least six months in prison. <laughs> so uh, we'll treat you right. And in fact, yeah, we, we have a defense counsel set up for you. And uh, this, this poor, I, I think this might be satire on the the actual legal system right like if you're poor and if no one is on your side who who is going to come to your defense just some beleaguered person buried in book work you're you know the 19th person he's defending today
1: this guy kind of does a decent job of it, at least if he's bullshitting, he's doing a good job of bullshitting,
0: yeah. so the, the yeah, so his defense counsel is the moral center of the film, I would say, right? because he he brings up to me morally the only proper argument, which is killing a man is wrong, right? and the the argument that we have here, and and I think what, the greater point, or the greater narrative of this film uh, is pointing to is, is the death sentence ever truly moral, right?
1: I will say no.
0: Yeah. So, and, and that you would agree with the, the defense counsel here then, right?
1: Uh, yes. But again, in, see, what's always crazy like that is you always ask people and then when you bring it home with like, well, if it's somebody that you know, what are you going to do? But, right what you count on with the justice system and the government is that they don't think like that so yeah. that there is that separation and they're supposed to be like if somebody is crazy and they did something do you kill them if it's something that they can't control that they had no control over doing
0: right and that's specifically his defense right he he uh did the the speech that i um put an excerpt from in the, in the intro to this that's basically what he's what he's talking about this,
2: right
1: laurie oh yeah Faustus, so, and what is the speech go ahead well i, I didn't transcribe
2: the speech uh but it basically because i i can't do it justice this is one of the um, yeah this is one of the most extraordinary performances i think ever laid down yeah uh, and laurie goes from showing one of the most amazing displays of abjection and terror to this pronouncement that he cannot control himself that he hears essentially voices in his head making demands that he do what he does and then you know he's he's trying to run from himself but he can't and that running with him are all the ghosts of those who he has killed and he sees in the streets announcements he's referring to these placards again discussions of what he has done um And so it's an appeal. He says, "I am not in control. I'm a victim here as well."
1: And he has some people in the audience shaking their heads, like they're they're, agreeing with them.
2: There appears to be a certain amount of sympathy in the audience. So there is a kind of opposition here when you when you oppose defense counsel, who says, "Look, you know, absence of control means absence of culpability." Right. Um, And he this is like the voice of, this is the voice of the law. This is the voice of the legal state this would have been the law uh under article 51 of the criminal code uh of of you know, the republic of germany uh and so he the, the defense counsel is arguing essentially the law of the state schrenker has a response which is to say the fact that he cannot control means that you know he must be wiped out that the only answer to someone like you is to eliminate um this, this scary rhetoric, which is Nazi rhetoric, by the way. Yeah. Um, it's essentially, you know, we can't, we don't have time for legalistic discussions. We don't have time for this sort of, we can't allow this sort of humanitarian thing. Uh, our survival demands, you know, the elimination of certain kinds of people. Um, and that's So sort of, there's that argument or that dialectic, uh, it's the most political moment in some ways of the, of the movie. Um, or so, one of the most political moments, anyway. So
0: I've pulled up oh. the, the, uh, the transcript of what he says. And, and I know I'm not going to do it justice. But for, for the listener, if you've not seen it, I'll, I'll give it a try. It's there all the time, driving me out to wander the streets, following me silently. But I can feel it there. It's me pursuing myself. I want to escape, to escape from myself. But it's impossible. I can't escape. I, I have to obey it. I have to run, run endless streets. I want to escape to get away. And I'm pursued by ghosts, ghosts of mothers and the children. They never leave me. They're always there, always, except when I do it. When I, then I can't remember anything. And afterwards, I see the posters, and I read what I've done, and I read, and I read. Did I do that? But I can't remember anything about it. But who will believe me? Who knows what it's like to be me? How I'm forced to act. How I must, I must, I don't want to, must, I don't want to but must, and then a voice screams, I can't bear to hear it, I can't go on, I can't. This clearly is a rad dude, you know?
1: And he had to say, <laughs> end scene.
0: Scene, yeah. Um, and so, like you said, Tim, and when he is reading this in a much better way than I can, because I'm not a fucking actor, I'm a terrible not Peter Laurie, yes. podcaster, um. The, the crowd is stunned, and, and some of them, yeah, are, are swayed toward, toward him. And it's interesting, what his defense says is, look, you, the prosecution, you're currently under investigation for three counts of manslaughter.
1: Oh, uh, He just brushed that shit off one, two, three. That's yeah. irrelevant. No,
0: no, no, it's got nothing to do with this. This man can't help it, though. He is a sick man. He needs a doctor. Not an executioner. No one has the right to kill a man, not the state, and least of all, all of you. The state must render him harmless so that he is no longer a danger to society. And boy, uh, the crowd does not love this. They uh, guffaw, they boo, and a woman stands up and she gives her impassioned speech. She says, Look, you've never lost a child, you should ask the mothers, right? And uh, oof. that's rough, right? Because the loss of a child, I, I can't even imagine. I can cannot. And well,
1: again, that's what I mean. When it's personal, when it's something that yep. happens to you, of course you are going to want to kill that person. There's yeah. no doubt about wanting to do that.
0: And but so many you people. You don't want
1: the justice system or the government to be that fucking yeah. hot-headed or fucking uh, just spur of the moment do something like
0: and that. And so many people opposed gay marriage until they had a gay child.
1: Oh yes, yeah. it's always yeah. different when it once it hits home when it's somebody that you know. That's when it's a whole different ballgame. Mm-hmm.
0: When you humanize uh, an issue, it becomes human.
1: And that's what he does with giving that speech. He humanizes yeah. himself because up to this point, they're just thinking he's the devil. That's either killing their business or killing their kids. But like you said, when he's given that speech. He's got some of them nodding their heads because they know what it's like. Yeah. Maybe not to that crazy extent, but.
0: But it doesn't work. Nope. Well, no
1: mob mentality rules out. Yeah.
0: Uh, so there's um, in, in philosophy there, there's a theory that the problem with mob justice is that the, uh, the level of intellect is dropped to the lowest member of the mob right jesus christ yeah or as george carlin once put it think of your average person and realize half of them are dumber than that (laughs) um i don't know faustus i feel like you've been quiet for a moment i'll I'll stop
2: monologuing well i mean this is fine i think you've basically covered it really well it's you know it gets ugly At this point there's a mob scene but suddenly it breaks right and someone must have shown up a really massive force oh god
0: right that's the only person who could stop them all in their
2: tracks yeah um everyone puts up their hands even shranker
1: um he's the last one to do it though he really hesitates before he does it
2: yeah uh and we see um who's cow a hand reaches into the frame, yeah. Uh, puts it on his shoulder and says, "Begins a statement in nama gesetzes in the name of the law." Uh, he's being arrested yeah. this time by the real police, um, and we cut. And we are now we're seeing a, a trial court. Uh, a head judge, followed by his assessors, comes in. He sits. at in Namen des Volkes, that is to say, in the name of the people, uh, which is, uh, I guess, the formula they will use for pronouncing judgment. Yeah. And then we cut, and we don't see what he has to say. Instead, what we see are three bereaved mothers, yeah. uh, Frau Beckmann in the middle, mm-hmm. uh, explaining that, you know, she's explaining, this will not bring our daughters back. Um, we have to keep closer, watch over the children, all of you, uh, the very last word said after eel said after a, a pause it's, it's accusatory cut and yep. that's the movie that's the way the german version ends yep that's it
1: uh, there's a wait there's a different ending
2: yes the the french the french ending there's a french ending and there's an english ending
1: let me guess which one had to clear it up a hundred percent is what happened to them the english <laughs> one, right i don't
2: think any of them actually happened but i think that there are like there are scenes of children playing at the end of both of the of both the other ones hmm. uh in the french in the french one it simply it simply reverts back to another count out game uh among children and then the same the game, one
1: or a different one or like a regular count out game
2: well i don't know if to say it's it's a similar one i don't i didn't see the beginning of the french one so i don't know if it's the same version but it's the same idea of like a bad man coming to get you um hmm. uh, And then i'm trying to remember in the english cuts i think just happy children playing um so the german version is much starker uh
0: yeah and you you wonder what um first of all the the uh, 180 that she has done from the beginning of ah it's uh wonderful we can hear the kids playing right even though what we hear is their foreboding is their warning us that a bad man is going to come and kill us to now we've we've found the bad man, right? And even even whatever fate has befallen the bad man, it doesn't matter. That's not going to fix things. We need to keep a better eye on our children. The other thing, the other note that I had, and and I mean, of course, this is all just my opinion, is when she's talking about keeping an eye on the children, I don't think she's necessarily talking about keeping an eye on the children. She's saying we need to keep an eye on each other, right? Because these children grow to men and these men grow to what they become. Right. Um, so the other, the other note that I have here, just really quickly at the end is in 1934, Hitler banned this film in Germany. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hmm. Mob justice. Um, the, the, uh, the, killing of people who maybe are mentally ill yeah
1: i think and i think i read somewhere that they had a problem with the permit from the nazis and they had to like think they changed the name of the title of the movie
2: well there they was a, like
1: get their permit back
2: i think that's what they said there was originally there was a title uh they originally had titled the murderer among us yes that was a title for mm. uh, and i think here this there are versions of these stories that float around uh one version is that this made the nazis angry um and because they thought that it was a reference to them uh and Uh, isn't it
1: amazing how bad people always think that when you talk about nazis it's a reference to them but these were
2: actual nazis well yeah uh and so they had they there was pressure to change the name of the film uh however i think at least you know, the editor, who uh, I think it was, who commented, on it said, I don't think that, he thought that wasn't true. He thought that there was actually just, it was a conflict between other movies that were being released at the same time. And so they picked out M as just something that would stand out by itself. Yeah. Uh, Paul Falkenberg, I think, actually said this. Uh, he probably would have known, um, because, you know, he was central to the project. He was the editor.
0: Looking at the, the cover of it, too, uh, of the... I mean, at least the 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 posters that floated for it. and and the the typical image that you see is the the hand reaching up with the stark red M on it is very reminiscent of of um, the kind of Doddist era uh, propaganda, right uh, of its of oh, yeah, its... you
1: could definitely see that as like a fucking recruiting poster of just course. a little bit different,
0: yeah, of its era, so uh, yeah, that's. That's the film M. And uh Tim, what do you what do you think, buddy?
1: Well, I'm glad we did it. I'm I'm glad I found it on I'm pretty sure it was Tubi. It disappeared really quick and sat through for almost two hours. It's it's just something to really behold. I can't do it justice. Smarter people than I have talked about the way that they filmed it and done all that stuff. But it's just really striking to watch it, the way that they got away with... You know 100% what he's doing to those kids, and you don't see anything at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's not a drop of blood in this film, and yet yet, it... And that's what
1: always makes it scary and worse. There's nothing that Fritz Lang could put on the screen that's going to be worse than what's in my imagination.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um yeah and as a person with uh, two my two last working brain cells that rub together eventually and and sometimes come out with something, I, I would say I think that, that that this film is, like like you said, Faust is probably one of the predecessors to most of 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 the world of horror and the world of the serial killer police procedural. You owe you owe it to yourself to see it, even if you've never seen it, and we've spoiled the whole thing for you. We, we've done
2: nothing. Doesn't matter. Doesn't yeah. matter. Like yeah. the brilliance of this thing isn't you know how yep. it concludes. The brilliance is the performances mm-hmm. and the setups. Yeah. Uh, Peter Lorre
1: was, I think, only twenty-seven.
0: Yeah,
2: when he when he did this did his iconic scene. Oh yeah,
1: this is the youngest I've ever seen him. Look, yeah, yeah.
0: and phenomenal. Like like I mean that's the reason why i opened this with that that cut of his dialogue it's
2: incredible
1: and there's one part where he's trapped in that fucking uh, cage thing where you almost have some sympathy for him you can feel like you said before you could just see like the terror in his eyes
0: no there are many times i i feel sympathetic for him i mean i mean even at the point where he's downing his cognacs right he he is compulsed to do this and he does not want to be that he does not choose to be that it's yeah i don't know there are smart people that know about philosophy and i'm stupid so i'm not going to weigh in on it <laughs>
1: uh that's why i have people like faustus on the show Fill well us give us some yeah. education
2: i just say you know get this movie get it in the highest resolution you can yeah. because there's always something to see yep um the blu-ray is at least right now unfortunately appears to be out of print uh so you'll know, go lobby Criterion collection to get it back in yeah yeah uh because, this, you know, it's just, it repays repeated watching. I looked at it four times last week uh, to, wow, to try to get mouses. a sense of, well, you know, like I said, it repays repeated watching. Yeah. Uh, so well, it, go, it
1: goes behind a clip, too. It's almost, what, an hour and 50 minutes, and mm. it does not feel like an hour and 50 minutes long. No,
0: no, at all. not at no. all. I mean, there are some moments of it that drag for a moment, but goddamn, it is, it is filmed so beautifully that, that who cares?
2: long does a tutorial here on how to keep the movie going yep. yep you know cutting between scenes uh you know making the plot seem like it's really moving keeping tension at a very high level uh like I said time matters intensely uh, in in this movie and long shows us how to make it matter yeah so if you are if you are a s- aspiring screenwriter if you are an aspiring director uh, this is something you just you need to watch over and over because it's it's a it's an explanation of how to make things go.
0: Yeah. There's no better example of building tension, I think, in, in cinema than this. No. Oh, so I had a good pick. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, Tim. You picked probably one of the top ten films in, in my in history. I was
1: just tooting around a Saturday afternoon, smoked a joint. Like, hey, I haven't watched them in a long time. Let's see what's up with this.
0: Sometimes that's the best time to find something, my friend. <laughs> so, Faustus. Before we go, what else should we
2: pay attention to? Oh, well, gee, that's kind of a broad question. Right. Uh, that that so directly it, well, involves you, sir. Kind of, kind of a big world out there. and uh, <laughs> But um, in terms of like, if this is the moment where I do the uh, plug, uh, over at eroticmadscience.com, the website that I run and commission a lot of work for, we're finishing up the storyboards with the auto icon screenplay. Mm-hmm. And in April, we'll have two new treats for our readers. Uh, I've got a short run of illustrations called Oregon Bell by my friend, Rafael Suzarte. And then, uh, I have two radio plays, uh, which I wrote because because I was bored and, um, because you know, quarantine is boring. Mm -hmm. So I took my fetish material and turned them into two audio dramas, uh, which I have written up and will be publishing. Uh, and we will have illustration sequences for those 15 illustrations each uh done by my guy, Eros Arts, who's my general comic book artist. As always, if you send me your mailing address, maybe some other swag, mm-hmm. uh, you can reach me through the contact page at eroticbadscience.com or you can DM me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at eroticbadsci and I love to hear.
0: And Faustus, if you need any support uh, technologically or or with whatever it takes to get your radio drama out there and put on the internet, of course, reach out to me. Um,
1: I fucking love radio dramas. Oh, God, yeah.
0: This is, you've reached the right place for it. I will say, check us out at patreon.com forward slash bloody bits. I'm going to give a special shout out to No Gutierrez, who is the best Patreon. All the other Patreons are below him. He' talent comparison, I hear
1: <laughs> he signed up at the twenty
0: dollars and one penny level. That is higher than any other patreon, except for the twenty dollars and two penny level that we've recently opened up. And once somebody signs up at that level, then forget about you, No Gutierrez. Uh, also, you can check out. We have a store uh, for some of our merchandise at streamlabs.com forward slash bloody bits, I believe. Yeah, you and... get to see uh
1: there's a t-shirt with uh you and me on it. Yeah
0: there is there there certainly is because we like fun Tim.
1: Who doesn't like fun? And Wouldn't you like to wear fun?
0: Wouldn't you like to wear fun? And uh other than that, of course, check out both of our sister podcasts, the uh mustachio podcastio, which had a phenomenal episode. <laughs> Come out very recently about Jungle to Jungle and yes. The Grind I love
1: bin. that episode.
0: And The Grind Bin. Um, definitely check that out. But uh, you're going to get a very
1: drunken Daniel. He wasn't that drunk. He says he was drunk, but he wasn't that bad. Uh, okay, okay. Right, take it from me.
0: I'll, I'll go along with that. Tim, uh, do you have anything you would like to point people's attention to?
1: Uh, I'm on half an episode of Daniel's podcast for Congo, because my internet went out half an hour into the goddamn Uh, show, but we didn't get to the part where they started singing California Dreaming. That was like the whole reason I wanted to do the whole fucking episode. I love that song. (sighs) And I know I got like almost a whole month coming up on the grind bit.
0: Wow. Finally. A month of Everything's coming up yobo. Everything's coming up yobo. So, I think this...